Hi, welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's good news for imperfect, flawed, confused people, people like you and like me, people who are hopefully sincerely seeking to follow Jesus with some authenticity and real humility. I'm Jeff Ebert, and this is season one, episode 20 of our journey through the Gospel of John. We're into chapter seven today, which I think is the most neglected part of John's telling of the life of Jesus. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who, you know, off the top of their head can tell you what's in this chapter. I mean, people can usually locate pretty quickly the miracle at the wedding in Cana in chapter 2, or Nicodemus' born-again conversation in chapter 3, or the woman at the well in chapter 4, the healing by the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus walking on water in chapter 6. But chapter 7 just kind of draws a blank. That's because there are no miracles or signs or really even memorable teaching passages here. No stories that move us because we can identify with the characters who encounter Jesus. Instead, this chapter gives us two things. A little glimpse into Jesus' family life, and it continues the conversation Jesus has been having with people who question his identity as God's Messiah, God's one and only Son. So I'm going to be reading uh, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. But before I do that, let me again invite you to consider becoming a financial supporter of Gospel Wabi Sabi to help cover the production costs. You can find info on how to do that in the episode description. And if you become a supporter at any level, please send me your email so I can email you a copy of the weekly podcast scripts. And also, this is something new. I'm planning a special supporters-only online Zoom event for the month of April. It'll probably be some kind of a topical Q&A conversation, and I'm hoping to rope my wife Donna into it as well, because we need some banter on this uh, podcast, and she's good at that. So I'll give you some more info on that in the next few weeks. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of the tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was a widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked him, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. 
There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Chapter 7 starts with a six-month gap in the time since the feeding of the 5,000 and the great discourse on the bread of life. If you'd like to know some of the events that took place in that intervening six months period, you could read them in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they trace more of that Galilean ministry of Jesus. And they fill in some of the gaps that the Gospel of John just simply leaps over. The closing words of chapter 6 leave us with this ominous situation. A turning point has occurred in Jesus' ministry. Many in the huge crowds of people who followed him everywhere he went, and even many of his own disciples have now drawn back. They've dropped away and are no longer following him. In the opening words of the chapter 7, John tells us that there is a hint of murder in the air. Jesus is aware of the growing hostility against him and that the Jews in Judea are seeking a way to kill him. The Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, it's also called Succoth, was now at hand. This is a great festival in Israel. It occurred usually end of September, early October, Originally, it was seven days in length, but later one more day was added, and in this chapter, that's called the Great Day of the Feast. During this time, the people of Jerusalem built booths with thatched roofs made of tree limbs and branches, and their families actually moved out of their houses and lived in them. This was to remind them that for 40 years, the Jews wandered as pilgrims in the wilderness and lived in tents. Observant Jews and some Messianic Christians still celebrate the Feast of Succoth today. This year, 2022, Succoth will begin on October 9th, in case you want to camp out in your backyard in a lean-to. Well, when this feast was starting, the four brothers of Jesus came to him. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3, and I think also in Matthew, tells us their names, James and Jude, who would later uh, write the two letters of the New Testament that bear their names, and Joseph and Simon. Jesus also had sisters, but their names are not given in the New Testament. These four brothers came as kind of a self-appointed intervention team to confront Jesus. They seemed to be offering him advice on how to expand his ministry, but you have to catch that their tone is sarcastic. They told him, in effect, oh, you need a larger arena. Galilee's too small for you. Why stay out here in the sticks? You're so great. You need to get down to Judea, to Jerusalem. That's the capital, the heart of the country. Your disciples in Judea, they need to see you again. Their faith needs to be reinforced by more of your miracles. You, you shouldn't be working in secret. If you really want to be recognized as the Messiah, you got to go out into the open where people can see what you're doing. It's a mistake to work in an obscure place like Galilee. Your gifts are being wasted here. Show yourself to the world. You have to imagine their advice dripping with sarcasm. The brothers couldn't deny the miraculous powers Jesus possessed. They had seen his miracles, and they must have been stunned by them because, you know, he never did anything like that as a, as a kid while he was growing up with them. I mean, he could have cleaned his room with a snap of his fingers, but he, he never did stuff like that. 
So they're still trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And as of yet, they're not his biggest fans. You can't help but think that there's some sibling rivalry going on here because John tells us in verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. If we could ask, is Jesus a great brother to you? I think they would have said, yes, he is. We love him, but we can never quite understand him. He's always been compassionate, merciful, kind, trustworthy. He's a great brother. And if you ask them, well, did Jesus have unusual powers? They would have to say, you know, not while he was growing up, but we can't deny his mysterious abilities to do remarkable things now. He does have great powers. But if you had asked them, do you believe he is the promised Messiah? They would have said at this point, no, we don't. We can't accept that. It's impossible to believe that this man whom we grew up with, I mean, we slept in the same bedroom with him. We went to school with him. We did all the things boys do together, that this is the one the scriptures are talking about. We, we can't believe that. That's why his brothers argued the way that they did. If they had accepted that he was the Messiah, it would have changed everything here. They believed that he was but one of them, a Jewish believer, but they did not yet see him as anything more. They did not see him as anything different than themselves. While his miraculous powers must have astonished them, they could not figure him out, and they did not accept his claims to be the Messiah. If you'd like to explore more about Jesus' humanity and his relationship with his family, I'd recommend a book to you. It was actually written by one of the guys who led me to Christ, uh, Dan Russ, Dr. Dan Russ now. It's called Flesh and Blood Jesus. Flesh and Blood Jesus kind of explores the humanity of Jesus. Well, Jesus responds that, this, that his time has not yet come. What Jesus means is that it was not yet the appointed hour for him to give himself away as the Messiah for the sins of the nation. The Feast of the Tabernacles was the wrong feast. In effect, he's saying to his brothers, you're asking me to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and make it known to everybody that I'm the Messiah. But if I did that, it would be the wrong time. It's not the appointed path that God has chosen for me. You see, Jesus understood the scriptures. He knew that God the Father had appointed not only a pathway for the Messiah to follow, but the very timing in which the events should occur. He knew that his sacrifice could not be offered at the Feast of Tabernacles, but at the Feast of the Passover. Like I said, Tabernacles was in late September, October. Passover is in late March or April. So there were six months left before his time was to come. He knew the Passover ceremony in the book of Exodus you know, came during the plagues that, Jesus, or that God sent on Pharaoh so that the Israelites would be set free from slavery. The Passover celebration recalled how the Israelites offered up a lamb as a sacrifice and then sprinkled its blood over the doorposts and lintel so that the angel of death would pass over the houses of the Israelites and spare them from the judgment of God. In a universal way, Jesus would be the central character in the cosmic recreation of that event, or vice versa, really. This was why John the Baptist's first words when he saw Jesus coming towards him were, Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist and Jesus both understood God's plan, but the brothers of Jesus did not. It must have been a real heartache to Jesus that his family did not understand and did not believe in him. There's nothing more hurtful than to be misunderstood by those closest to you. And yet this is what our Lord had to live with all the time. And so when he said, but your time is always here, he meant that if his brothers went up to the feast, they would only be fulfilling what 
everybody expected of them. They would be acting as normal religious Jews, fulfilling a normal religious duty, and that would not irritate anybody. So they could do their thing without any fear of arousing uh, antagonism. And that's why it says the world cannot hate you, because you're living according to the standards that are operating, the way things work. You're not raising any questions. You're not challenging anything. But it hates me because when I speak, I expose the hearts of men and women. I call evil by the right names. I speak the truth that causes people to wince, and they don't like that. They hate me because I tell them the truth. But Jesus doesn't play games like our public figures so often do today. You know, carefully controlled, crafted words so that you don't offend or trigger anyone. I mean, today no one wants to be canceled. No one wants to be the victim of online shaming. Jesus just didn't play that game. Jesus came to tell people the truth. And in doing so, he aroused instinctively almost the antagonism of the heart that wants to cover up for the evil inside. So in many ways, Jesus is inherently offensive. Jesus is inherently offensive. He is going to offend many people, and that cannot be avoided. You know, we're at a stage in church life today when people think that the main job of the church is sort of to be liked by the people who don't believe in Jesus, that the church needs to adapt, make itself, you know, sort of pagan friendly, if you will, so that those on the outside will want to come on the inside. Now, I understand the need to build loving bridges from the church to the world. I understand the need for sensitive evangelism. Don't get me wrong. The church should be a place of welcome. But at some point, people will encounter the hard teachings of Jesus. And we can't make that any easier. We can't and shouldn't water down the gospel just to make it more palatable. Many people will encounter Jesus and then walk away. Why? Because Jesus makes a big ask. Because Jesus demands first place. Jesus demands surrender, your whole self, your identity, your dreams, your passions, beliefs, your relationships, your sexuality, your education, job, future, past, your everything. Jesus wants it all. Remember Tim Keller's brief definition of the gospel? The gospel says, come as you are, but not stay as you are. So at some point, there's a decision to be made And many people, in fact, the majority of people will choose not to follow Jesus or believe in him. And that's a tragedy. I mean, Jesus said it was going to be this way, Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Tragically, there's a wide road out there. And there's plenty of room for more and a narrow road. And many people will be offended by Jesus and walk away. All right, going on verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also not publicly, but in secret. Well, now we learn why Jesus didn't want to go. He did not want to take his disciples or his brothers to the feast because that would have attracted attention to him. So he sent his brothers on ahead, probably with the disciples, because we do see that they show up later on in Jerusalem. But Jesus went up alone, kind of incognito, uh, undercover, as it were, so as not to draw attention to himself, sort of on a reconnaissance mission to scope out the situation. And Jesus found Jerusalem flooded with rumors about him. He was the talk of the town, the sensation of the nation. Reports of his miracles had saturated Jerusalem, and everybody was talking about him. 
John says in verses 11 through 13 that people were looking for him, arguing about him. Some said it was good. Others thought he was a phony. Others thought he was downright dangerous. So you have this polarization of the crowd. And that tension captures the atmosphere of the feast. Man, isn't that true of our world today? People so polarized about Jesus. Jesus actually said he was going to be a divider. Read what he said in Luke chapter 12, verse 29. People are never going to agree about Jesus. That's forever until he comes again. If you think people are going to line up happily, that all people are going to line up happily in support of Jesus, you are chasing a fantasy. It's never going to happen. And that's why persecution is and always has been a reality for the Christian church throughout the ages. There's never been a time without the persecution of Christians. And we have to admit, when Christians or so-called Christians were in power, when they had the political and the military muscle, they often did the same thing to others. Even here in our own passage, we're told the secret police were everywhere. And everyone was afraid of being hauled up before the leaders. So people did not speak openly about Jesus, but they whispered about him. After looking over their shoulders to see who was listening, they did talk about him. So the tension is definitely in the air. And next we learn why Jesus eventually went up to the festival. John writes in verse 14, Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who speaks or he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? So why are you trying to kill me? You know, I think Jesus was a marvelous teacher. I wish I could have heard his words as he spoke. You know, he spoke so plainly, so powerfully, that even his enemies, they marveled at his ability. Here is revealed the authority of Jesus. He did not speak like the other teachers of Israel. The text reads, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Actually, literally what it says is, how does this man know his letters so well? The letters refer to the scriptures, and what Jesus was doing was teaching from the scriptures. He was taking those ancient prophecies and other passages and expounding on them and explaining them. But he did not do it like the rabbis did. In that way, or in that day, and maybe it's still true today, every Jewish rabbi began his teachings with words such as the sages say, or the Talmud declares, or the Mishnah explains, and so on. But Jesus never quoted an authority other than the scriptures. He never quoted an authority other than the scriptures. And he would say, as we've repeatedly seen recorded for us here in John's Gospels, he would say, truly, truly, I say to you, I say to you, he spoke solely on his own authority as God's son. <clears throat> when he talked like that, people listened. They were captured by what he said. And I'm guessing that the most common response of people listening to Jesus as he was teaching was probably something like, yeah, that, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's what I've always felt. Because what he said was confirmed by life and experience. It had about it what J.B. Phillips calls the ring of truth. When Jesus spoke, it just had the ring of truth, truth that deep, almost intuitive conviction that what he said was reality. What he said was the way things really are. When people 
wondered among themselves where he learned this because he was not a graduate of any rabbinical college or nor had he sat under the great teachers. They fell into the trap that many people fall into today that want us to go to school in order to learn. And the only way one can ever be qualified to preach or teach is to graduate from a seminary. Now, I'm a great believer in getting a good theological and pastoral education if somebody's going into full-time ministry. Great believer in that, and I think we're short, shorting the church when we don't have educated clergy who understand the original languages and, and other things like that. But there are times when God deliberately sets all that aside, and he raises somebody up, somebody like a D.L. Moody. You know, that great late 19th century American evangelist. He was basically uneducated. He only attended school to the third grade. He started out as a shoe salesman and as a janitor at a local YMCA uh, near Chicago. And yet when God got a hold of him, he went on to become uh, one of the most influential American Christian leaders of all time. And when he preached, Moody, he, he murdered the English language. A lot of his sermons that you'll see today have been highly edited to kind of get rid of some of his faux pas. But lots of people look down their noses at him because of his lack of good erudition. For example, people could not deny his influence. And so when asked to speak to students at Cambridge University in England, he started with this sentence, and I quote, Young gentlemen, don't ever think God don't love you, for he do. Not good grammar. And yet he was powerfully used by God. When people asked Jesus to reveal the origin of his teachings, he told them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Note that he was not even claiming to be a self-made man. Many people who have not gone to school or didn't have advantages still are proud of their knowledge or their accomplishments. And they say, you know, I taught myself, I studied, I worked, I, I made myself. There's much pride lurking beneath that. Someone has said that the only problem with being a self-made man is that then they tend to worship their creator. Jesus always gave glory to the Father. It's a great verse in Isaiah 50, verse 4. It says, The Lord God gave me the ability to teach so that I know what to say to make the weak strong. Every morning he wakes me. He teaches me to listen like a student. I think that was really Jesus' attitude. The Father is the source of the teaching that understands life and is in full accord with reality. I'm tired of all the talking heads who give nonstop opinions on every topic under the sun, including so many people who jump into the arena of spiritual leadership. I don't want to hear clever preaching anymore. I don't want to hear from a man or a woman. Uh, I mean, I want to hear from a man or a woman who knows Christ and has been with him recently. I don't want to listen to how people feel. I want to hear from somebody who has been taught of God. And then in verse 17, one of the most remarkable verses in his teaching, Jesus gives the key to understanding his words. He says, if anyone's will is to do his will, meaning God's will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. We seem to circle back to this issue in John over and over again. Is Jesus actually what and who he claimed to be? Do people have trouble understanding what he is saying in these tremendous passages? If someone is doubting his veracity, Jesus tells us what to do. Practice what he says. Put it into practice. Obey his words. Repent of your sins. Come to him. Cast yourself on his mercy. Believe in his forgiveness. Go out and treat people the way he says to. Do those things, 
And then you will know from the inside knowledge that no one can take away that what he says is true because his teachings are in line with reality. This is a principle that runs all through life. You learn by doing. A doctor may learn all the medical books can teach, but not until he or she gets their hands into surgery or dispenses medicines to people, you know, will they ever really learn. The same is true in any field. You learn by doing. When you do what Jesus says, you begin to understand with a deep conviction that he knows what life is all about. Obedience sometimes precedes faith. This explains the phenomenon of certain people who become Christians, some of them early, some of them late in life, but those people who immediately practice what they've learned and you see them rapidly grow in their faith. They become grown-up, capable, well-adjusted, hold persons seemingly almost overnight, while others who can sit under the teachings of Scripture for years and years hardly seem to grow at all. They're still childlike or childish, immature in their behavior, emotionally upset, anxious, fearful, lots of drama all the time. Why is this? It's because they're not doing what they hear. They're not obeying what Jesus has said. Those who put into practice the truth, they hear and begin to grow immediately. The reason behind spiritual growth is to obey what you've learned. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to know the whole Bible backwards and forwards. Just obey what you already know. Let me say that again. Just obey what you already know. That's enough. All right, verse 18 reveals the mark of an authentic learner. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there's nothing false about him. This was true, of course, of Jesus. He didn't seek his own glory. He did not care whether he spoke to one person or a great crowd, whether it was in you know back alley or in the courts of the temple. He was the same person regardless of the size of the crowd. What he said was always true, always compassionate, didn't care whether anybody praised him or not. It was really sad to see somebody in Christian ministry who was obviously seeking a reputation who is seeking to be a career builder, seeking to be recognized and lauded and publicized, because then they inevitably start playing to the crowd. Their ego kicks in. They start to follow whatever the popular trends are. And it, I don't know, it just feels so phony to me. Such people may teach much that is true. They may develop a large following, but you know, there's, there's just this something that's off in their heart, something that's wrong. And so that although what they say is true, it comes, I don't know, without maybe lasting power. It does not accomplish much positive for the kingdom. Well, in this last section, we see a wonderful example of Jesus' skill in public debate. He starts talking about Moses. But this interaction goes back to when Jesus healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. Remember, he performed that miracle on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders just flipped out about it because that broke all their Sabbath laws. The leaders of the Jews were accusing Jesus of being a lawbreaker because of that instance. And Jesus' argument is, you know, why are you so hostile to me? Why are you seeking to murder me? You break the law as much as, as you accuse me of doing. And the crowd interrupts and said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? They're obviously ignorant of the kind of the intrigue of their leaders and the plots to destroy Jesus. So in ignorance and innocence, they cry out and say, you're a madman. What are you talking about? Nobody's trying to kill you. But knowing the intent of the leaders, Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. 
Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, and then there's a parenthesis from John, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you so angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Here's Jesus's powerful argument here. I made a man well on the Sabbath, and the crowd rejoiced in that. In obedience to the law of Moses, your leaders will circumcise boys on the Sabbath day, because the law required that circumcision must take place on the eighth day after birth. On many occasions, that day would obviously fall on a Sabbath day. But the law said that the boy was to be circumcised anyway, because circumcision was a more important ritual. It was a more important rite than obeying the Sabbath laws. But circumcision, I mean, it's a form of mutilation of the body. That's forbidden on the Sabbath. Granted, it has moral significance, but it is a cutting of the flesh. And according to their laws, it should not be done. I mean, the Jewish uh, rabbi's laws, not the Old Testament. The cutting off of part of the foreskin is a sign or symbol of putting away the evil of the flesh, and that was commanded of God of all men under the Old Testament covenant. Yet, Jesus argues, you do that on the Sabbath day, therefore, therefore you're violating your own understanding of the Sabbath rest. If you cut a little boy on the Sabbath, is it not better for me to heal a man and make him whole on the Sabbath day? You can see the power and the force of that argument, and apparently there's no response to that reasoning. So our Lord kind of closes the dialogue with this warning in verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. In other words, don't just judge by a superficial look at the outside of things, by externals. Get your values straight. Look at the matters from God's point of view. Only then can you make a righteous judgment. There's nothing more applicable to today's world than these closing words of Jesus. How much we need to look at life from God's point of view, to value what he values, to look at life through the lens of Scripture. Then and only then can we get our own judgments straight. Because our world is upside down these days. What is valued by our culture dehumanizes the very people who pursue those values. It often seems like our cultural leaders are just kind of hell-bent on destroying the world that is, and yet they have nothing really to replace it with. So easy to tear down and watch things crumble. So easy to pursue kind of moral, spiritual, sexual, political anarchy. And the consequences are distressing. The words of Jesus come home to our generation as strongly as they did to his. We need to learn discernment. We need to look at the world, look at people through the eyes of Jesus, through the judgment of the gospel through Jesus's words of true and then truth. And then we just need to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your clear teaching about life. Forgive me, forgive us for our self-deceits, our falsehoods, the way we lie to ourselves. Keep us trusting in your word. Help us to understand it so that we might learn what it really says. Help us to obey what we hear. Help us to obey what we already know. Help us to make good judgments based on your truth. Amen. I hope that's able to be your prayer this week as you go about life, to seek the discernment of God into all of your circumstances. That's my prayer for you. Have a great week. 